Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? Which is adorable. What Everybody wears their costume. What did she wear? Out. Who was she? Zombie cheerleader. Love it. Love it. Yes. Especially since I'm um I'm watching Glee. I'm I'm for oh, the yeah. first time. And there's the all about the cheerleaders there. Zombie cheerleader. Perfect. For so she's walking around and she's holding these pom-poms out. And I'm like, what is she doing? And then I realized she was doing a zombie walk. She's smart. Why do zombies hold their arms out in front of them? Oh, that's a great that is, Why is a, that a zombie great thing. Great question. If there's any zombie experts in his zombie historians in our listener pool, please write to us and tell us why. That's great. Like, like I think it started with mummies. Well, Frank, okay. Okay. That's what I was going to ask next. I was going to say, if there are any zombie historians, please tell us what the origin of it was. So mummies. Mummies first in the old movies, old, old movies, the mummies walked like that. So I think the zombies are stealing that look from the mummies. So, okay. And you know, something around this time of year, it does get like, I forget about, there's a difference between a zombie and a mummy. And then there's uh, slow zombies, there's fat zombies. I mean, zombies is a really? whole genre of everything. Oh yeah, like like if you if you read screenwriting stuff, um they talk a lot about not not all books, but a lot of books when they're talking about genre, it's like the the to get really specific, you can't just say zombie. It has to be are they slow or fast zombies? So like in um what is it? Like um, uh World War Z they're fast zombies, but like I believe in the original Day of the Dead, Romero's, they're slow zombies. So it's a whole thing. And I know I only know this because I had a friend that was like a zombie nut. So so, so picture you and I are sitting on a park bench in the apocalypse. And we're just still our same normal selves. Somehow we've avoided getting affected by the apocalypse. And then this zombie just goes zipping Zipping past us, and we say, oh, no, fast, zombie. "Fast zombie, fast zombie," and then a slow one comes with That's a slow zombie. Can tell, I can see already. That's going to be a real slow zombie. <laughs> what about a medium speed zombie? That's, that's what I'd probably be. I'd probably just be right, be right the in the slow, middle. I think I'd be on the slower end, but but I I think with some training, we could maybe get to be fast zombies if we yeah. wanted, if we yeah. wanted to. Yeah. So, did you get yourself care in? I did. did you feel so, regulated. I feel, how do I feel? How to say, uh, yeah, so it's interesting. I, I am in, in amongst my group of peers and people a little younger. I have become sort of the, my cousin called it the cancer doula. So when uh, some, it's the exact term that I yeah, was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, I had a friend who was diagnosed on Tuesday with breast cancer and I sort of helped her navigate until she could, cause there's this weird period between when you're tested slash diagnose the first, you know, I mean, there's a lot of weird periods, but the the weirdest one from my, in my experience as an outsider, look, I've never had the disease in my body myself, but I've known many people who have, including my mom and my husband. And there is this weird 
period between when you're diagnosed and when your treatment starts. So, and that is like a no man's land where people's minds go crazy. Understandably, that's what Mm -hmm. our mind does. So I was sort of there because she had, um, and she's younger, she's 33, and she's sort of a mentee in a lot of ways. She's a writer of mine. Um, uh, And I just was there to like field questions. And then when I didn't know them, I said, I have no idea, but you'll find out from the doctor. I have no idea. But to uh, question, and basically the question is that everybody asks is, am I going to die? So, which is obviously such a layered question because we all know that the answer is yes. I mean, that's part of the deal. When is another thing. And so Mm -hmm. it's like, I never say, well, we're all going to die. So like, calm down. Uh, because that's just not helpful. And it's also not helpful to me when I'm in that situation at all. So what I say is, based on what the doctor said, because people never remember what the doctor says when the doctor calls. And luckily, I was there to write it all down. I was there when she got the official confirmation. And I immediately just started writing everything the doctor said, because later you can go back and say, listen, Based on what the doctor said out of the words out of her mouth were, this is treatable and curable type of cancer. So we have to go with what the experts say. Say, Science and the expert. This lady is a badass. This is what she has devoted her life to. She's seen. And so anyway, a lot of what I did this week was regurgitating and or like reiterating what the expert said so that this, my friend could not lose her mind. Like that's literally what I, you know, and, and, and it is a, yeah, the brain is a wild creature and, um, it looks like my friend's going to be okay. However, nobody really knows because, you know, and then, and then the question is, will it come back? So like it, it never ends. The questions will never end and it's best to stick with the data. Hey, let me run this by you. Actually, that's kind of related to the thing I wanted to run by you, which is not anything that specific, but just generally about projection. And like, I'm always so, it's actually always really amusing to me when I catch myself in a projection, um, which really you can make the argument that like everything you do in life is, is a projection because that's just sort of how we're built um, psychically. But um no, like I, I, I have a friend, a local friend who has a business and it's a business that I happen to drive by every, almost every day. And I noticed like, well, I first, I thought during the pandemic, oh, I wonder if this business is going to close and it's, she, she stayed there and she stayed there. And then I, one day I drove by and I realized that there was no, it was empty inside. And I thought, okay. I got to, you know, and then I've been like debating reaching out to her because, you know, it's this, it's tricky. Like some people would welcome that and some people would feel ashamed or whatever. And I, and every day I drove by this thing and I feel bad that I hadn't called her and I feel bad for her and just imagining her. Maybe she had to move. Maybe she had to leave the area. Maybe she can't afford to live here anymore. Or maybe she moved her business (laughs) to a new location, to a new location. Which is, Which is my a, guess is what happened. That's exactly what happened. And it's just hilarious. The amount of, <laughs> because of course it doesn't have anything to do with her and it has everything to do with me, but 
I just love catching myself yeah. in these moments. And what you're talking about with the cancer, I mean, it's impossible for her not to project whatever her knowledge or experiences of cancer onto her, this situation. It would be impossible in, in a good way for you not to project your experience. I mean, it turns out your projection was really helpful because you knew to write things down and you knew and you could imagine her you could imagine you the freaking out was very familiar to you and yeah so you know it could be a good thing but but projection yeah I think that you're right in that most things are projection and it doesn't mean that it isn't right also happening with the other person so your projection could be spot on (laughs) right so I guess then it's not really a projection but it is if you are a if you are giving the characteristics and the the feeling and the tone of your own situation to their experience. But um, I definitely feel like the obvious projections for me are like when, when I think, you know, someone's angry or upset with me and really they're afraid that I'm upset with them. Like that is the, if you ever, when people are like, what is projection? I'm like, look, dude, that's at, for me at its simplest form. It's like, Oh, I'm projecting that onto you because that, so anyway. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I think the, um, if we could harness the power of the brain doing its gymnastics, we could power the whole planet for for decades in terms of the energy that is used and i anxious energy and just like going in in the story the narrative of whatever it is and even if it's um because you can i mean even though it's rare like i can do a positive projection too like what i've talked about on this podcast of like thinking someone's gonna be my best friend or be projecting my hopes and dreams onto someone that i don't know that they're gonna help me they're gonna it's gonna be awesome and that usually doesn't happen just because it's a projection and you can't know it usually is a different version of that even if it is a positive projection but you know my, my husband miles is always saying you might as well project something positive but you have to be careful I have to be careful with that too because then I get into situations where I'm like why 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 aren't why why aren't we best friends and why didn't you ask me to to join your circus whatever it is like and then so it's just a matter of like for me knowing that projection is part of the deal but also eventually if I'm brave enough to check things out like to to figure out if the business just moved or like yeah yeah that's what yeah I think over time as you know this about as people know this about themselves and as their maybe as some of their anxiety decreases about these kind of things in any case they learn to check the facts more so I this topic came up um yesterday at my house because it just hasn't been a good week for like it hasn't been a good week family wise Um, right kids aren't we're just not doing that great and so last night at dinner I said we're not doing that great like this one is you're fighting with this one and this one is it's this the bickering blah 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 and we've had many many you know children of two therapists we talk everything out or we try to talk everything out. We talk most things out. It's to the point that my oldest is like, I can't wait to live in a family and in a house where we never have to talk about our feelings. He's he, he, he thinks this is all just such, which is understandable and fine. 
and we started talking about this issue of how every time you're having a fight, you're having every other fight that you've, you're having all the other fights, right? That is correct. And what we were trying to, or what I was trying to convey, because one of the things that we were talking about is dishonesty. And I was, mm. and I, and I came up with an analogy that I'm pretty proud of. So let's see what okay. you think about it. If you think of the connection between relationships, trust, and honesty, the relationship is the road long stretch in any direction the trust is the car and honesty is the gas Mm. so you can have a beautiful car and a great road that looks like it's going someplace fantastic but if you don't have the honesty to put in the tank your car is not going to go you could have a great amount of honesty or get or uh, truthfulness but if you don't have trust, if you have nothing, no gas, nothing to put the gas into, that's not going to help you get anywhere. And you can have an amazing road leading to these great vistas, but if you don't have the car, you don't. Right. Have I think that's great. Right. Pretty good. And how did and it go over? It went. It went over pretty great. And then one of my kids said, oh, "I wish I could remember what it was." He said, "Well, you need this for a relationship." Oh, he said, "Kindness." I said, "Okay, that could be the oil." Yeah, you have to refresh your kindness. Oh, and that was the other thing that came out of it. I said, let's, let's do a kindness campaign in our house. Let's do every day we try to say one pause. And you know what was tricky for them? It was tricky for them to give each other a compliment that didn't have to do with themselves. Like the compliment started out as like, I like how you were I like how you stopped saying this to me. (laughs) I liked how you did something for me. And so then the challenge was say a compliment that doesn't have anything to do with yourself. Um, Anyway, so just as all just to say you, if you really, if you want to make a difference in your life about these long held intractable beliefs, you just have to, you have to take an extremely active approach to do it. You have to come up with like, not just thinking differently, but like actual steps. Agreed. And I, I think that it's a constant, uh, a constant work and it is right. It goes through phases and um, it's interesting. Like, you know, my dad was a child psychologist, but he was like super, super troubled. And so we never talked out anything. I think he was trying to get what he needed through his clients, right? He was trying to get, he was projecting onto his clients, even though they're kids, we project on the kids just the same. And um, he was also probably trying to get um, what he didn't get as a kid through his clients. It's just a never ending. But I, I think later in life, I hope, I hope that, that your kiddo can see that like the talking things out as annoying as it probably gets, at least I think that, um, right in there too, in the car, like maybe that, um, the seatbelt could be like safety, right. In the relationship, Mm -hmm. we had no safety in our, in our family, in terms of talking things out in terms, you need it all. And I think that, that, um, at least I hope kiddos who who talk things out in their families learn that like it's safe to it can be safe to express themselves um i think that's gonna behoove kiddos as they get older in terms of 
not being super uber people pleasers, but maybe you do all the work and you're just a people pleaser anyway. I don't know. I don't have that experience, so I can't say. Uh, one little funny anecdote I'll share with you is I was driving with my daughter and I don't know how we got on the topic of it. We weren't talking about self-esteem, but whatever we were talking about, she was asking me about something about me when I was a kid. And I said, well, probably not because I didn't have very much self-esteem. And she said, what? And I said, you know, I just didn't like have, I didn't think that highly of myself. (laughs) I mean, the look on her face was just, she goes, I have nothing but (laughs) self-esteem. Good. I mean, she, uh, it, she said, I say nice things to myself. <gasps> I think I'm, she said, I say nice things to myself every morning. <gasps> I, yeah, yeah. Like she had this whole, like, basically practice, like a spiritual nice. practice of loving awesome. herself that I didn't even know she had. Aaron probably taught it to her. Aaron probably said, you know, you have to say nice things to yourself every day. But isn't that beautiful? So awesome. Yeah, that is yeah. gives me so much hope. So yes, much yes, hope. Yes, um, yeah. Hey, I wanted to ask you about House of Games, which you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Did you say that's your favorite movie? It's it's one of Miles' favorite movies, and it's a, it's a really interesting, weird movie, and it is. Um, it's been years since I've seen it, but it's wild. It's so it's like. I saw it so, for the first time. Oh, yeah. Based on you saying that and did you hate it? Interviewing Joe Montini. No, no. Oh. It, it, it was, I liked it, but, and so maybe I was wondering if maybe we could ask our guest about this today because um, what is it about, like, sometimes that rat-a-tat speaking style really works. Like, I think it really works in Glengarry Glen Ross. Um and I, it just, in this movie, it was so stilted. Everything yeah. came across think, so stilted. So it, I, if I recall correctly, like one of the things that I liked about that was that the whole thing's a con, right? So like fake. Oh, so like, I think I the stilted for me was like, oh, this whole thing is like. The, I see. Everything's a con. That's how I interpret it. Now it could just be dialogue that didn't work, but like it, that's why it worked for me because I was like, oh my God, meta on a meta level, like it, okay. it, it does seem stilted and it seems weird. And even when, but I, for some reason it like, we like, it really worked and Miles is obsessed with the story, like the way the story is told, you know, just, and the acting, but you're right. The dialogue is odd. So it would, do you think it's fair to say that the premise of the movie, as you've already said, is that everything is a con and that the psychiatrist is there that's just a more legit and celebrated right. sort of con and i'd be interested to see what what joe thinks about that you know like mm-hmm. about that take on that movie um and then yeah yeah so house of games and then the other one you know of his stuff is the criminal minds one and then i'm that 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 i've watched i mean criminal minds is like it just went off the air right in 2020 and um 
the other thing is my aunt made me tell him said that I had to tell him that he gets better looking as he gets older. A, oh, I agree. I'm like, what is happening? So we got to tell him that. But um, and then my so criminal minds, and then I'm really interested. He he su- su- supports on his website. It says Homeboy Industries, which is about gang members, and and I really want to see if he's. I'm assuming he's still affiliated with that since it's on his website. So I'd love to hear about that. But also just like what was a Goodman School of Drama? Like what in yeah. the hell went on? Yeah, yeah. And I watched. I ended up watching a bunch of interviews with him. He really seems like the nicest guy in the world. He he really does. And we have this weird sort of one. I only heard him mention this in one interview. But his Italian ancestors weren't from the same area as mine, but from this from Sicily. And um, they came to the United States and settled in the Southwest because they were miners. And that's exactly what my dad's family did and i never met any other italians except for the people who lived in my dad's town who did that because every you know every other italian goes that to you new meet york goes to new york yeah and sometimes chicago later but yeah 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 so i kind of wanted to ask him about and then i figured you, you guys Today on the podcast, we're talking with Joe Mantegna. Now listen, if you don't know who he is, I don't know where you've been, but he's a star of stage. He's a Tony winner, star of screen. You might have seen him on uh, Criminal Minds, of course, but also the movie House of Games and Godfather Part 3. I mean, the guy has done everything. He's He's really a living legend. So please enjoy our conversation with Joe Mantegna. man i have a lot of stuff <laughs> you're you are and you know what a zaddy is a zaddy no oh it's like a term for like a hot dad <laughs> okay i'll take so it you're a zaddy yeah before we start just since we're being weird my aunt my tia wanted me to tell you that you um as you get older you the the most you get more and more handsome so we'll just start oh. by that saying that well i tell tell your aunt i already love her so that's yeah, great <laughs> i'll tell her i'll tell her thank you for joining us yes thank you oh well thank i mean uh, you are you are you currently at the school now or are you past it or old oh my god i'm like a grandmother you're, you're oh okay kind. got it we're, we're right. 46 well, okay okay i wasn't sure that's right you're alumni okay that's, yeah we're I alumni mean, that's yeah. okay yes okay great so we we always start by saying congratulations joe montana you survived theater school i did survive theater school yeah and you are our first goodman person and we want to hear all about it i mean because you've stayed involved with the school so you know what it's like now Mm -hmm. what are some of the main differences well i mean it's hard for me to compare differences in terms of the academia of the school because obviously i didn't attend it once it moved to DePaul. but um so that that's a tough question in terms of that uh but all I could say is, I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad it was perpetuated. In other words, it, it, it had to be a whole different ballgame back when I was going, because first of all, it was the Goodman School of Drama. We were located in the basement of the Art Institute. Uh, so it was like being in a little, you know, you're underground. There was no windows. <laughs> there was a big deal when they made that little theater. So there wasn't even a theater that existed outside of the um, the main stage. But students weren't even allowed to 
perform on that main stage. I mean, uh, until the second year um, when you were eligible to do children's theater, which was kind of a moneymaker for the school, which was kind of cool because every Saturday you'd do these performances, which I did. I did all four. I did all three children's shows. That's my second year. Plus, they had a summer program where they actually paid you. It wasn't much. But if they, you know, you can do the summer. But the program—I don't even know if they still continued that. Did they do that at DePaul? Did they have the children's theater program? Oh, the children's theater program is actually still—I—it's the money maker, I believe. Exactly. For this. All right. Yeah, it always yeah, yeah. was. Yeah. yeah. So, but it was good. I mean, it was a good experience. In fact, they had, they had a thing. <laughs> I don't know if you knew this, but over the marquee of the theater at the Goodman Theater was this uh, 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 carved into the wood. Uh, and it's probably it's been there since the inception when I don't know when that theater was built. It could have been the turn of the century, if not earlier. But it said, you yourself must set flame to the faggots which you have brought. Are we aware of that? No. No. Well, that was carved into the, I mean, in other words, we were in the audience. And it was a nice theater. It's like a 700-seat theater. You sit in that theater and you saw this beautiful wooden proscenium. And carved in huge letters was "You yourself must set flame to the faggots which you have brought." Now, a faggot is a is a bundle of sticks. Bundle of sticks, you know. Obviously, it had a, a other kind of back in the sixties, a whole other kind of <laughs> yes. terminology. So, the reason I bring it up is because at the end of the school year, they had the Golden Faggot Award. <laughs> oh my and, god! And it was these little. It was a, they. And it was it was kind of cute. They would take these upside down plastic champagne cups and put these gold bundles of sticks and paint them gold. You know, it was all, it was very like crafts and, you know, it was like, like crafts stuff. Arts and crafts. And, and, arts and crafts. And they and they had this big ceremony at the end of the year and they gave out these golden faggot awards. And I, I was very flattered because I won, I won, I won three that year. I won for all three of the shows that I had done at the Goodman for the summer. So I was, I was, I was, I was, I was a big ticket in the ch in children's theater. You were out. the hot ticket. In I was a hot theater. ticket in children's theater. But the one thing I could say is, and, I, and again, you would be best to tell me if it was uh, um, somewhat in, similar in scope, but the theater school was run very much like, uh, maybe I can imagine, maybe like a theater school would have been run in the 1800s. I mean, it was very specific, very, I mean, that first year, you really didn't do anything. You just took classes, you took speech, movement, this, that, and the other, but there was hardly any performance. It was it was almost like they were trying to, it was almost like the military. It's almost like, let's get the ego out of you. Yeah. I don't care what you did in high school or junior, I went, I went two years junior college before I came to the good one. But it was like, all, all you did was you had an improv class maybe or, or, right. or stuff like that, but there was no performance outlet. There really was none, and they wanted it that way. And God forbid if you told them, you know, maybe you had an audition for oh, it. No. At that time, there was very little outside stuff like TV or film, very little anyway. But if you even mentioned that, it would be like, you know, what are you, crazy? You know, you're a theater actor. You know? Yeah. And what, so the um, whole thing – yeah, go ahead. What junior college did you go to? I'm just curious. I went to Mort Morton, Morton Junior College in Cicero, Illinois. I know where it is. I'm from Chicago. I'm from uh, Rogers Park, and then we moved to Evanston. So my mom okay. taught at Oakton Community College, so I was wondering if it was Oakton. But it's not yeah, Morton. no, it was Morton, Morton Junior okay. College. And in fact, okay. then it was still in the same building as the high school. Mm -hmm. uh, they have their own building now in Cicero, but it was back okay. then it was in the same building. So we used to put a piece of grass in the third floor hall and called it the campus, you know, because yeah, we right, were in the same right, building right. as I. So I mean, I didn't have much uh, in terms of, uh, you know, 
education past high school, but it you know worked out. But but uh, but but the classes were very. I mean, like there was the less. I don't know if they still taught the Lessac method for speech. Uh, they they combined it with uh, when we were there anyway with Linklater. It was Lessac and Linklater. Okay. Well, it was Lessac then, and it was huge. I mean, you're walking around with a cork in your mouth and looking in mirrors <gasps> and doing all that stuff. Oh. And it was very, you know, rigid. I guess would be the best way to put it. Uh, and, and and for a long time, I thought, what the hell is this? Why is it? You know, this is bullshit. What am I doing all this crazy stuff for? And it really wasn't until later when I and I mean, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but after my two years, and I and I paid my way through. I mean, back then the tuition was like eight hundred bucks a year, and I and I, I we had no money. My parents. That's why I couldn't go to college. Uh, but I took student loans both years. In other words, back then they offered you can you could borrow two thousand dollars from the United States government each year for school, and I did. And I would use the eight hundred bucks to get into the school for the first year. And the rest, I bought my parents a color TV because it was a new thing then. And I used it for rent because I lived with two other guys that went to the Goodman. And my second year, I got a scholarship, but I still took the loan because I needed the money. So then I just used the two grand for, you know, whatever, uh, rent and things like that. Uh, what was funny was, so then my third year, I had a scholarship for my third year. And this was the summer of 1969. But they were doing the play Hair was coming to Chicago. And they were holding auditions and something like over 3000 people were going to audition for the play. I mean, it was huge. It was like, I mean, it would be like Hamilton mm -hmm. holding auditions for a Chicago company of Hamilton or something like that. So I thought, well, what the hell? I had done my, my background was musical comedy, actually, in high school and junior college for the most part. So I thought, oh, what the hell? I'll try out for it. Well, as it turned out, I got cast. And it was like, now I had to make a decision. Do I to my third year of Goodman, my third and final year of Goodman School of Drama or to hair. So I remember meeting with Dr. Charles McGall, who was running the school at the time. And I, I honestly think I would have been influenced by what he thought. Because I thought, you know, I don't know, it's, I mean, yeah, it's a Broadway musical, it's my first job, I get to join equity and become a professional actor. But on the other hand, they're probably looking at hair like, oh, Oh my God! You're doing right. a musical, right. you know. Right. Uh, so, but I went met with him, and I have to say, Doctor McGaw, in his, in his whatever wisdom you want to call it, whatever I, I explained to him what was going on, and I was like a month out of maybe starting school for my third and final year, and he said, "Listen, Joe, uh, or Mister Montaigne, or whatever he called me at the time, he said um, you came here to be an actor. They're offering you a job." Your third year is mainly going to be performance uh, for whatever. Maybe he understood me better than I understood myself. But he said, go, go congratulations, wow. carry on and, you know, live your life and, you know, to, to make start your path. That's amazing. Oh. And I did. And I never looked back. Um, I mean, can you imagine if you hadn't done that? Who knows what would have happened? But that was. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, yeah. I love that he said that and that he was not like, no, you must stay in school because who knows what would have happened. You probably would have been still a mega talent, but you never know. And um, so you did hair. Well, you don't know. 
I did hair. I did hair for a year and a half on Broad. I mean, it was on uh, the, the Schubert Theater downtown, which is now the, I don't know, the American Airlines Theater, United Air, I don't know what it was called. <laughs> yeah, but we were at the Schubert, and in fact, the show was so successful, it ran there for a year, and then it was already booked for, because I never thought a play could run for a year in downtown. Mm-hmm. So then we moved to the Blackstone, which ultimately got bought by the okay. theater school. Mm-hmm. But we moved then to the Blackstone in 19, had to be done 19, sometime in 1970. And we ran there for quite a while. And then I, I joined the national tour. And, and that's where my wife and I got together. She was, she, she, we'd known each other from, I was in junior college, she was in high school, but we used to do district-wide musicals out in Cicero. She went to Morton West High School. I went to Morton East. We did district-wide music. She also got cast in here. But this is somebody I'd known, known from. That, that theater department was so tremendous. I have to say that from Morton East, Morton West, and the junior college, that of the four leads in hair, three of us were from that program of Morton wow. East, Morton West. Yeah, out of three thousand people auditioning, they all came. Three of us came from that high school. Uh, you know, wow. either you must, Morton East or Morton West. You yeah, must have and had great did, teachers. Incredible, incredible. The one guy who ran the department was to this day I'm in touch with him. He's like almost ninety, but uh, him and the people who worked with him. They ran that department like, I've, look, I've worked on Broadway now a few times. And each time I walk into a Broadway theater, I look around and go, well, this is all right, but it's not Morton East High School. It, you know, the, 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 the theater is not as, first as big, because it's, it's, it's the, the theater at Morton East High School was built like in the 20s and 30s, and it's a, it's a landmark. And it's like 2,300 seats. I mean, it's, wow. it's, 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 it's massive, and it's beautiful. And, uh, and we would do plays. And they ran these auditions like my wife and I've always said we're still together my wife I mean we've been together now over 50 years but we'll 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 talk about how it was harder to audition for the plays in more east and west than it was to audition for professional shows wow Wow. that's neither here nor there but my anyway that's when I left the Goodman in 69 to to go into the um the hair uh uh but now to get back to my point being, you know, t- you know, why am I taking these classes, the movement, uh, you know, or, you know, running around with Tom Jarimba who taught the movement at the time and, and, and Sue Ann Park who did the, uh, the, the Lessex stuff. All of a sudden I get cast. Now all of a sudden I'm doing eight shows a week of a musical. This is a whole other ball game for who, anybody who has been a student. All of a sudden I'm seeing other kids in the cast, like they're losing their voice. They're doing this and that. And I'm realizing I'm having to do stuff like, you know, using the Y buzz and and putting, you know, making sure when I'm singing and doing lines on a stage as big as the Schubert, you know, to project in order to get it, you know, start to tap in to those things I learned. And the same thing with movement class. You know, I remember at my audition, I think that helped me get cast because they'd have you do some improv stuff. And a lot of people were just like, you know, they were doing, they were doing dick, you know, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm, think, I'm trying to be imaginative because I've taken these movement classes. So I'm, you know, and it was like, so I had to say in retrospect, I thought to myself, you know what? As strict as it was and, and as kind of arcane as it maybe it seemed or, you know, serious minded as it was, it, it kind of paid off because many of the cast ultimately got, Tom O'Horgan, who was the director, was a, who was a great director. He, he directed the original Broadway show. There was only four other, com- three other companies besides New York of that ilk. There was New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. And Tom O'Horgan directed all of them. And he was this brilliant, you know, he was, he, he created, he made hair what it was by, you know, 
making it imaginative as it was. There was the dune scene. There was all that little stuff to kind of titillate the audience and to make them want to see it, you know. But it was so much more than that. The music was great. It was just, it was the Hamilton of its time. Uh, <clears throat> but um, but all of that came into play, and a lot of the kids. He hired, Tom would hire like raw talent initially, like when they cast the show. They thought this person sings good. Like I'll, in fact, I'll give you an example. When I went to audition, <laughs> I you know I I've been going to the Goodman for two years. I show up in a seersucker jacket with a tie, and the music to Brigadoon. <laughs> yes. Because I'm thinking yes. it's a it's a musical. I'll, right. All right. I'll I'll sing you know you know the Heather on the Hill and uh, and mm-hmm. I want to look presentable, and I walk in and here's. Jerome Ragney and Jim Rado and Tom O'Horgan, and they looked like they stepped off, you know, like a Rolling Stones cover. They got their yes. hair here, and they're looking at me like I'm from Mars, because I'm like <laughs> dressed in a suit and tie. And, and I said, I'm now going to sing a song from Brigadoon. You know, I go, can't we two go walk? And they were like, <laughs> I could see they were like in shock. But I guess they had, I, I was in a rock band for like five years. So I mean, I had a decent voice and, and whatever, whatever. Goals, right? Yeah. Yeah. So they saw something in me and they said, look, uh, we want you to come back. You know, this was the first callback. They said, come back, but dump the suit. You know, (laughs) luckily my hair was a little long because I was in the band. I was still in the band. So my hair was actually longer than most people. It was like a kind of like beetle look, you know. They said, get rid of all that that stuff and and pick something a little, you know, pick a song that's, you know. And I realized, Mm -hmm. oh, this is not like pretend, you know. Right. You know love rock musical these guys really are like that yeah and of course i came in i borrowed one of the students at the good i remember his name was dan partner he was like a hippie from from colorado and he used to wear like a serape to school mm-hmm. which is basically a, a rug with a hole in it yep mm-hmm. i borrowed that i wore that to the next audition so i walked in with that and you know and i sang something from like blood sweat and tears or something and nice. it was like there we go and i wound up doing two or three more callbacks and got cast Anyway, uh, but my point being, many of the students got, or not, not students, many of the cast members got dropped along the way. And not only that, when I got cast, I was cast what they called the tribe. I was a member of the tribe. My one major number was the flag song. That was like my solo. But otherwise, I did all anything stuff. I wasn't one initially one of the leads. My my wife, Arlene, from Morton West was. She played Jeannie. Mm-hmm. And then this kid, other kid from Morton East, Ted Aliota, uh, was Claude, but he broke his leg actually in early in rehearsals and they had to replace him but that's why i meant we had three of us that ultimately did the lead in the show but i quickly became the understudy because the guy was, wasn't cutting it who had the lead because he was like a rock and roll not a rock and roll he was like a vegas kind of guy and mm-hmm. he had a lot of flash and stuff but he couldn't hold up to eight shows a week doing a and that's then the a understudy, lot of shows yeah i mean once you if you've never done that you know, it's 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 a responsibility, and a lot of them didn't take that seriously. They'd be out partying every night, and they come in. I can't talk. I, 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 you know. So, bottom line, once once Tom O'Horgan left, and it became like, hey, this we got to do this as a this is a job. Mm-hmm. Then things started to fall into place. Like Andre De Shields, who you may know who he is, mm-hmm. who won the Tony a couple years ago. He was in our company that cast. Uh, Stan Shaw, another, another guy, went on to some notoriety. Uh, from Roots and other things, Elena Reed. Um, anyway, yeah. But it started. It started to shake itself down, and people who really kind of had some some element of knowing what they were doing. Jonathan Banks, who you may know from Breaking Bad and all that, mm-hmm. he was our stage. He was our stage manager. <laughs> he tried out. 
he was he tried out, but he couldn't sing well enough. So, but he lied and said he had experience in stage managing. So they made him the stage manager. Wow. Everything you're describing about your curriculum sounds actually exactly like what we did. The difference is we did if for four years. Okay. Um, and and the la- and you couldn't perform your first year. You only got no. to do uh, something no. on a very small scale second year. You really didn't get into the casting pool till third and fourth year. Right. What's but funny what- is I got I got in I did something in my first year totally by a fluke because I had I was the only kid in school with hair like down to here. The one of the main stage show they did one of the first main stage shows they did my first year was Caesar and Cleopatra, with Carrie Snodgrass who wound up winning and nominated for an Oscar later married neil young and passed away but anyway she was cleopatra and this guy murray matheson was uh was an actor they, you know, they used to bring in like names and he was oh. somewhat of a name in theater you know they, they would bring in name people to play the leads but no students no first-year students could be involved they used third-year students and stuff to, to play other parts but first-year students absolutely not but i remember the the director this guy named i forget his name but he sees me walking around school with his hair down to here. And he, he tells, the, you know, McGaw, says, I need that guy in the play. He's the only person in the entire school who looks Egyptian. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to have to put wigs on everybody because everybody's got, you know, everybody's got short hair. Nobody was. And so they put me. So I just played like a spirit carrier, you know, in that whole production. But I used to drive Carrie Snodgrass home every night because she happened to live near where I lived. Uh so I got to know her pretty well, but that was my that was that was the one and only time I, I made it to the Goodman main stage because I, I left the school before I would have been eligible otherwise. Did they have the cut program then? Were they the asked program? People, the where people you had to be invited back every year. Well, I'll t- it was I'll tell you this: it was a little different back then in the sense that you didn't audition my first year. You you had letters of recommendation, and and also, you know, the Vietnam War was going on. And there'd be sometimes there'd be military people coming in and out that wanted to become actors, and they would get letters of recommendation. So we'd have some people in there that were like guys that were a little older that were had done a couple of years in the Army or whatever. So, but what they did is, I'll, I'll give you an example. My, my freshman class was 60, as I recall, like about 60 people. My second year class was 12. That's how many got cut or quit. Oh, so there was, because oh. There was, but I think it was kind of self-emulating and whatever the word is, turning yourself on fire. Because what would happen is, I mean, there were literally a couple of people who were like certifiably insane. Yes. That got our, our year too. That doesn't stop. That yeah. Doesn't stop. So, I mean, all of a sudden you'd see you do an improv and all of a sudden they really wanted to kill you, you know, things like yeah. that. Yeah. And so... So a lot of people fell along the wayside and got weeded out because they shouldn't have been there in the first place. And if they'd had a, 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 at least an audition process, which they started sometime after I left, um, they would have at least maybe seen that. I don't know. But but by but, but just going on letters of recommendation didn't quite cut it. So uh, so there was a lot of people there who realized, well, no, what am I doing here? I don't want to do especially with, with being as strict as it was. I think they thought it was going to be like, hey, I can have fun and do this. You know, some people actually switched programs. They would go like, you know what? I don't want to be an actor. I want to be a set designer. Or they go into the lighting department, you know, something like that. Um, so there was a big attrition. 
And the third year, as I said, if, if I would have stayed in my third year, of the 12, only five continued. So that third year class was only five that had done the for previous two years. And like I said, they, some left for different reasons. Some just didn't want to like it anymore. Some got a job like I did. Some, uh, you know, just went back home. And some just couldn't cut it. You know, yeah. and maybe we might may not have been asked to come back, but you would think they'd want the money. I mean, I think you know, I think a lot of it was more. They just people just couldn't quite handle. Yeah. Did you know Bella Itkin? I was very, very close to Bella Itkin. Probably, I would. You know, I, and I can't speak for the late Bella Itkin, but she probably had to name maybe the five students she was closest to her in her life. I think I would be one of them, and I don't mean that. In a, in a boastful way, because we got involved in a very personal way. She knew I was kind of like one of the broke kids, you know, that like was living off my loan and stuff. So literally, she met her husband, Frank, you know, while I was there. He was a carpenter at the school at the time. She hired me to paint their apartment when she got married. So after school, I would go to their apartment and paint it, you know, and I, I wasn't I wasn't a painter, but she did it only because she knew I needed the money. And and so we were very close. And, and, and even beyond, after I left the Goodman, I would come and visit her, call her. I'd been to her home, her and Frank. Uh, we were very, very close. I, my, my dear friend, Renee Asa, was, was another one she got very close to. Uh, and she used to talk about Geraldine Page. She was always close to Geraldine Page, who had been married to Rip Torn. A wonderful actress. So was she uh, your acting teacher? Well, we didn't have a specific acting teacher. I mean, with the cat, you, the, the, the staff, I mean, there was nobody, was, there was no like one-on-one -on -one thing, but she was certainly, I would say she was my strongest influence. She And she directed, uh, I know she directed the first of the children's shows I did there. I think maybe even two of them. And I was one of her, I mean, I could tell I was one of her favorites, you know, I mean, with her and I, we bonded. I mean, we just were. She had a couple people that you could tell. And there was a, you may have heard about Eugenie Leontovich, who was a teacher there. She was from, she was something. She was Russian. <laughs> and she was from the Moscow, you know, art theater and that whole thing. And she 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 studied, you know, she, she knew Stanislavski. I mean, she was something. She had this heavy Russian accent. You could look her up because she she, she was in a few movies. Her name was Eugenie Leontovich, but she talked this way, and she, I was, my Joseph, my Joseph, that's what she called me. Uh, you know, she was actually wonderful because she was such a character. Patrick Henry was another one on the staff who taught history class, and he was kind of, he started the street theater that became very prominent in Chicago back in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s. And so the staff then was like Patrick Henry, Leontovich, uh, Bella. Joe Slowick. Um, yeah. Those are the, those were the main ones, and then there were others that I could think of. Sue Ann Park, Todd Voice. Did uh, did Bella did, did Dr. Bella always have that acerbic wit? Yes. We've had so many people on this podcast telling their Bella stories. I mean, she yeah. she had the greatest one-liners. My favorite yeah. one was, she said to somebody, "You're standing in the middle of your costume." Yeah, that sounds and exactly she, like Bella. The other one was, um, we had a friend who went to her and said, I really wanted to be in this play. Why, why did, wasn't I Why wasn't I cast? And she said, because I didn't want you in my play. 
<laughs> and that and like that yeah. was it. Yeah, Bella would cut to the chase. I could yeah. see that. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, she she was. Uh, I, I loved her to death. And yes, if I had to pick who was my favorite, you know, instructor or pe- people on the staff there would have definitely been Bella. Uh, Tom Jarimbo was was we got to, I got to be very close to because uh, got to remember this is the '60s and he was the one guy that actually, you know, uh, after hours you could smoke a joint with him. You know sure. what I mean? Mm-hmm. But but he hated the fact that I, we would come to dance class, you know, after having smoked a joint. Because he knew it, he'd say, "Chip, I told you guys, don't do this during school hours." Yeah. But he was great, and uh, and uh, anyway, but like I said, this was the '60s. It was a, a unique time in our history. Yeah. So, That's okay. I just want to make it's just a friend. It's not. Yeah. It's not so you. Sure it's not the gate. You got launched with hair, and then what? Did you did you keep doing theater? When did you transition into? television and film oh yeah i did theater for well i did theater for almost 15 years in other words after here the next actually thing i did was godspell in chicago mm-hmm. i got cast in godspell at the studebaker theater over on michigan mm-hmm. avenue there i think it's gone now it's gone the but it, yeah. mm-hmm. i got cast in that i was i was judas uh in that and i did that for a year so i really thought that was my ticket i thought you know, I'm going to be a musical comedy. I'm going to be you know, Jim Dale, hopefully, mm-hmm. or something like that. But while I was at doing a Godspell, um, Andre DeShields, who I mentioned, who had been in the hair cast with me, went back and started working with this group that he had worked with out of the University of Wisconsin, which was the Organic Theater Company, oh, yeah. which mm-hmm. run by Stuart Gordon. So they had come back from Wisconsin because they basically had been kind of kicked out because they had done this nude version of Peter Pan up there, you know, which was very <laughs> controversial. It wasn't completely nude. But I think Andre played Tiger Lily, which gives you an idea of what the, you know, the imagination of that. But that's what was great about the organic theater at the time. So anyway, he comes back and he's working with the organic theater. So of course, while I'm doing Godspell, he invites my wife and I, we weren't married yet, but we were still together, my, my, my Arlene and I, to come see um, him do the show Warp at the organic theater. <clears throat> this is like 1971, maybe 72, 72. And we see it and the show just knocked our socks off because it was done in three, they did three, they wound up doing three parts. It ran in Chicago for like over a year. Wow. It was tremendous. You got to also re- realize too, Greece was playing at the Kingston Mines Theater as a midnight show. We used to go see that. That was like- a Kingston fun. Mines Theater, like the Blues Club? Yeah, it was a theater. It was called the Kingston Mines. Wow. Oh, I used to work there when it was a blues bar. I didn't know it had been a theater first. Oh, it was a theater. And the reason it was called Kingston Mines is because, have you ever heard of the actor Jack Wallace? Yeah. Who, yes. Well, Jack recently passed away about a year ago. But Jack, June Pekasik, who started the Kingston Mines, she let Jack, was, at that time, was a terrible alcoholic, but was cleaning himself up. And she let him live in the theater in exchange for cleaning up, sweeping up. And his father was a miner in Southern Illinois at the at, in Kingston Mines. So June decided to name the theater the Kingston Mines Theater, that whole complex, because of Jack's father working in these mines. Because she she took it was such, she had such an affinity for Jack because he was this this incredible human being. And it wound up Jack did clean himself up, and it wound up between one flew over to Cuckoo's Nest mm-hmm. in Chicago as McMurphy and got all this acclaim. And they made a documentary which you should see called you know Portrait of an Actor. You know, he he had been in prison. He had, been, you know, Jack and I worked together many, many times after that. We did a movie 
for a Columbia student film called Medusa Challenger that actually got a lot of play. Uh, he, he did the original. He was in when Gary Glenn Ross with me on Broadway. I mean, he was he did a lot wow. of the Mammoth movies. Jack went on. He did things. He did a anyway. You look him up. But Jack was a force of nature. It's, it's the epitome of of Chicago raw talent, ex-convict who becomes <laughs> a Broadway actor type of thing. But anyway, Kingston Mines, yeah, that was the midnight show at Kingston Mines, Greece. And from there, it went to went on to New York and became one. And it wasn't really a, a, a musical at the Kingston Mines. It was a play with some music, but it was much more raw. I mean, there was stuff in like, fuck you, and da, da, da. You know, I mean, it was, it was, it, it actually had a lot more balls and it was more, I thought it was actually better than, than what it became, but of course it had to do that to become commercial and become yeah. what it became. But anyway, that's that's another story. Um, uh, so I don't even know how we got on that. That's topic. okay because you were talking about what between hair and oh you know, right, starting so, film like, so anyway, right. So Godspell, we went to see Warp, and I was so taken by the show. I thought it was so imaginative. It was kind of like what hair was to me. It was like this guy Stuart Gordon. I mean, he's like, wow, because the thing was, they were they were using like goofy little props and stuff, but this thing was so, explosions and things and lighting and this little tiny theater, you know, up in uh, Uptown, you know, up on Beacon Street, and mm-hmm. up, which was a terrible neighborhood. Terrible. And it was like, what, what is this? You know, this is incredible. So anyway, uh, uh, that show then went on to Broadway while I was doing Godspell, but it flopped. You know, New York wasn't kind of ready for it. Unfortunately, as it turned out, then years later, Star Wars happened and all that. It actually predated all that stuff. It just wasn't. It, it, it probably because they, 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 their vision was too big. They should have kept it like it as an off-Broadway show, and I think it'd have been huge. But they tried to expand it to Broadway, and you can't because what made it, it was campy, and the camp didn't work on a giant Broadway yeah. stage. Anyway, so Stuart Gordon comes back to Chicago with the whole company. Some of the people left, John Hurd, who's got to be pretty well known, he left. Uh, but some of the original stayed, Cordis Hurd, uh, a few others. They said, well, we're gonna come back and re- you know restart the company, the organic. And at this time now, Godspell was ending. And I decided, I don't know if they still have it in Chicago, they used to have these equity showcases where you can, if you were an equity member, <clears throat> you could put together a scene and then they would invite agents and they still have versions of it yep at the at the theater building on belmont they had it for a long time okay well that year now i godspell had finished and i thought well why don't i do this equity showcase scene maybe um you know that'll do something so i i I used this one actor richard gilliland who was married to gene smart who became my dearest friend who actually just passed away last year and meshach taylor another pretty well-known actor also passed away a few years ago, but the three of us, myself, Richard, and and Mishak, decided to do a play. And I said, you know, let me ask this director who did Warp, who that worked for my friend Andre De Shields, see if he'd like to direct it because he's just back from New York. Maybe he's got nothing to do. And I called, and he did. He was looking at Stewart. Was like, oh, man, yeah, be great. So he directed us in this little showcase scene, and it was wonderful. You know, and nothing really. I mean, it didn't matter what came of it. But what came of it was he asked us, the three of us to join his company, the new organic theater company. Mm-hmm. And I had nothing else going and I thought, I like this guy and I thought, yeah, I'll do it. And Meshach said he'll do it. The only reason Richard do it, didn't do it, he got offered a job with ACT in San Francisco <clears throat> after God's spell and he went off and did that. 
So Meshach and I joined the Organic Theater. <clears throat> the first play we did was The Wonderful High School Soup by Ray Bradbury, which actually turned out to be a huge hit. We toured Europe. We took it to Europe. Um, oh. we 20, 25 years later, I made the movie with Stuart. You know, for Disney, we actually made the movie. With, I was the only one from that cast, but it was Isai Morales, Ed, Eddie Olmos, uh, Gregory Sierra. It was great. Anyway, the movie, I thought, I loved the movie. It came out, I thought, pretty well. Uh, Disney didn't push it very much, but at least it came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so I was that that started my career with the organic theater. I wound up staying five years, uh, lasting doing a play that I conceived, which was Bleacher Bums, about this oh, people yeah. who sat in the bleachers of the Chicago Cubs. Uh, I came in with this idea. We, with the summertime, we had used all our grant money on our shows that year, and Stewart said to the cast, to the company, anybody got an idea for a play that will cost us nothing? And I said, well, I said, I have this idea of a play of the people who sit in the bleachers. All we'd have to do is build some bleachers in the yeah. costumes. You just wear what you wear to the ballpark. And that's what got Bleacher Bums going. And is that, as it turned you, out, it, is that what inspired your whole SNL thing with the, the Bears? Bleacher Bums? No, no, no. I, I had, I did I mean, I didn't, I mean, you'd have to ask them. I mean, I didn't, they, Robert Smigel, who came up with that bit, he, I think he just did it thinking, I'm I'm oh. hosting SNL and I'm from Chicago. Yeah. So I could, I'd be the guy to do this bit. Yeah. And, Bleacher Bums is brilliant. Br- it's like one of the first things I saw as someone from that area as like a teenager. And I thought, oh, this is like, this is Chicago. This is, you know, this is right. my town. It is so right. iconic. It is hilarious. And I didn't know that was the origin story, Joe. That's yeah, amazing. no, and it came out. And, and look, I, I mean, if you go to Samuel French and get the script, it says conceived by Joe Montaigne, written by, and my name is in there with the original cast as it should be, because we once I pitched the idea because I, I used to sit in that section of the bleachers and saw was going around me, and I said, I went, so I brought the company to the ball game. We went there for like three days in a row. Wrigley Field. I said, Am I right? Isn't this a play? <laughs> And so we went back to the theater and did improv after improv and taped them. So we did like nine hours worth of improv. Wow. And from that gleaned the script. And we and we built it around a nine inning play. That was that was important. And I remember going to Wrigley Field with a Nagra recorder, recording sounds just so we'd have the sound. And when people walked into theater, we had a guy selling popcorn. So we that, that was organic was. We wanted it to be immersible, mm-hmm. like you were there. Mm-hmm. You know, we did the play Cops. It was like that, too. You, you walked in, you thought you were walking into a diner at midnight in Chicago. So anyway, uh, but I got lucky with that one. And it was like, yeah, the, the idea was a good idea, but I couldn't have done it alone. And so mm-hmm. collectively, and it became obviously to this day, they still do it. I mean, I get, you know, royalty checks for like, you know, 30 bucks every six months. Yeah, we shared the royalties with all the original cast. Right. Do you feel like you're um, an ensemble, like an ensemble actor? Do you consider yourself like working in an ensemble is your jam? It's my yeah, I would say it's my it's my jam because that's what I know. I mean, like I said, as I said, when I finally, like I said, when Glenn Gary finally happened in 1984, which kind of did change my certainly changed my career plane. I remember after I won the Tony Award uh, that night. Somebody came up to me and said, well, what's it like to win a Tony Award? I said, it's like winning the lottery, but, I, but I've been buying tickets for 15 years. Mm-hmm. You know, right. Right. I mean, I've been doing theater from, from 1969 to 1984. Right. And now, bang, this happened. 
So, I mean, all I knew was ensemble work, especially at the organic, but even in the musicals, it had to be. I mean, you're, unless you're working, as soon as you're working even with one other actor, it's an ensemble. Yeah, I mean, one man show, right, know? right. And I think it translates for me watching you on television. So I'm a true crime nut like every other lady in this world. But I so <laughs> so and, and Criminal Minds is one of my, my favorite things of all time. And what I noticed about you on that show is that there is still an ensemble feel to that show for me that it is not it's like it's a family you're watching and i think that's what makes it so amazing well that's i'll, I'll tell you this when i joined the show when they came to me <clears throat> you know mandy patinkin had been on the show and he left and he left kind of i mean that's a whole story in itself yeah. but he just kind of he just left <laughs> the first day of shooting on, on episode of the third season he just didn't come right. for you know there's a lot of reasons and that's a whole other story so anyway, now they did. Uh, you may, if you've watched the show, there was like three or four episodes that they kind of they, they had to scramble. Yeah. They, they wrote him out and like, and so there was nobody there. So then I get the call saying uh, they're interested in you of playing this part. You know, Mandy Patinkin left the show and they're looking for somebody to kind of fill that slot. And I didn't know anything about it. In fact, the only thing I knew about Criminal Minds was that my dear friend Meshack Taylor loved the show and had told me, "You got to watch the show. Oh, I love the show." And I still, so I still didn't watch it. Hmm. But now I'm being offered the role, and I go, I better see what this is. So I watched, they, they gave me the episodes. I watched like one or two of the, the very first episodes from season one. But I said, I want to see what they're doing now. So they sent me the episodes that they had just done without Mandy, you know, so I could see what was going on. And I watched them, and I thought, when, it, when Mandy was there, it was kind of like, he was like, you know, leading the parade. Right. But when I watched those episodes without him, I thought, this is no, this is not Magnum PI. This is not House. This is an ensemble. Yeah. Every one of these actors are tremendous and they have such a strong identity. You know, Dr. Reed, he, he was my favorite right away. I went, this fucking character is unbelievable. Yep. I mean, I so love this funny. guy and I don't even know who he was. And, and, and same thing with Penelope Garcia and every single one of them, they had such a strong identity. And now it was really able to blossom because that that the guy who was kind of leading the parade isn't there now. And they all have to kind of pick up the slack. So I looked at it. So then I took the meeting with, uh, uh, um, no, I can't believe I'm spacing on his name, uh, Ed Bernero, who was the showrunner, ex-Chicago cop. 10 years yeah. in Chicago. Yeah. And so the first thing when I met him, I, I, I walked in his office and he had these White Sox things. I go, well, two out of three ain't bad. I said, you're an Italian, you're Italian from Chicago, but you're a Sox fan. I said, but I'll, that, that's, that's, I'll, I can look at that. You'll still take the meeting. You'll still do the I'll meeting. I'll take the meeting. Yeah. So then I said to him, we talked and I said, and it was a short meeting. He even brought it up later. He says it was the shortest meeting I ever had. I expected all these questions. That thing. And he says, I remember you coming and looking around saying, well, you're Italian. You're a cop from Chicago. You're a Sox fan. I could live with that. I'll do it. And then he was like, you'll do it? I said, yeah, I'm in. And then I explained it. But what I said was, I said, but here's the condition. I said, you got to keep the ensemble that you have now. I said, don't put me at the front of the parade. I said, yeah, I'll accept being number one on the call sheet, which, I, which was important to me because I've been around long enough to realize it trickles down from number one. And if Mandy was number one and he's a little nuts, they don't need, right. <laughs> I don't need to be find no. out that somebody else is a little nuts and it's going to trickle down to me as number two, three, right. four, five. I got to lead the, I got to be 
at least in terms of that, you know, I, I want to set the tone because I'm not going to be nuts. I, right. I know myself well enough to think it's going to be okay. We're going to have a good time on this, you know, and especially everybody was still shook up. They thought maybe the show was going to go away, you know, when he left. And I said, look, no, this show, I don't think it's going to go anywhere. I said, it's like a baseball team. I said, you lost the left fielder. I'll come in. I'll play left field. I said, but, you know, it's not my show. I said, so I said, I, in fact, I said, the, the analogy I made is, I said, I want to be Dr. Smith from Lost in Space. I want to be the old curm curmudgeon in the group. I said, but I don't want to be the captain. Yeah. I said, no. I said, let Thomas Gibson be the, the that guy. Let him, he, he's the likely guy. To, he's running the team. Let me just be, you know, what I am. I said, so they built this whole backstory of he and I. And then we, and then we even did the episode. We saw the young versions of us and blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah, blah. And anyway, so right from the jump, I felt this was a tremendous ensemble. That, if you look at all the great shows long running especially television of all time that's the reason yes you, you go to mary tyler moore you go to i love lucy so yeah it, it reminds me of um so i'm a huge i was a huge um uh barney miller show fan growing yeah, right, up too. and it has a similar vibe to me where everybody's it just it, it it you can sense the fact that everyone respects the other person's right. work and everyone right. does their job so well that I cared about I, I never cared about like when I watch true crime I'm like ah if they get off it's okay but like in in criminal minds I was like no 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 they, they, everyone was essential to the whole show exactly so it was brilliant and brilliant. that's what that's what keeps the show going because of course there's going to be changes as we did we know some people come and go there were some cast changes this and that but the, the the nucleus always was still there and some people filled in some didn't fill in the maybe as well as others did, but but I tell you, where we wound up, the final eight, and it went everywhere from eight to seven to five to six, back to eight, mm -hmm. but, you know, the, we wound up with eight, and boy, that last two seasons, we got really tight, that group, because mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I think we were all of a similar mind. It was four women, four men, and we were all like, all on the same track. And, you know, spoiler alert, there's a good chance we're coming back. Uh, what? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, you heard we're, it here first, and I survived. I heard it here first. Yeah, we'll see. All I can tell you is there's there's strong uh, interest from Paramount Plus because they're that new outlet for oh, yeah. CBS yeah, and everything. Right. And of course, they they realized they would like to have something. We do so well in syndication. We're still, I think, one of the top five in the world. I get fan mail from, you know, I, I from mean, China. It's, it's, yeah. it's ridiculous. I've been this year. I've been invited to about 150. You talk about girls. High school girls' graduations and, and some marriages, but mostly graduations. The young girls, uh, and I get it; they're fascinated by this because they, they want to know what to avoid. I think, you know, well, it's that, like a learning experience. I, I used to see myself um, in the because Gina, Gina, and I were both therapists for many years, and then and now writers, and so I could see myself in those characters as a as a woman. It usually true crime. The the problem is it's all men all the time. But Criminal Minds right. had such compelling women characters that weren't just victims. That oh, it actually no, was absolutely. amazing. So that's yeah, just no, no, my women, yeah. Yeah, they're so strong. All four of them. The four we especially we wound up with. I mean, Kirsten and, and Paget and AJ and so Aisha. I mean, you, there's, I can't think of four stronger women. And every, and we all got along so well. There's no egos. There's no nothing. I mean, it's like, that's why we're all, we're all in. I mean, we're all, 
you know, they're doing a lot of business and negotiations. But we as a collective yeah. group have said we we would like nothing better than to get back together and play around for another whatever, how long. So we'll yeah. see. Okay. What happened, the soonest it'll happen would be probably spring of next year, but I'll, I'll, I'll let you know. Please okay. keep me posted. Check in with me. I'll, I'll keep I will. Okay. We will. So um, I want to respect your time, and I, I know we're going to have to wrap up soon, but I've got to ask okay. about David Mamet, who's such a big yeah. part of your career. I right. actually hadn't seen House of Games until a couple of days ago, and um, it reminded me. So I always have the same experience watching a Mamet play. Mm -hmm. um, which is, I can't get into it. I can't get into it. I'm all the way in. I never want to leave. That's always my journey. And it was the same with that movie. Right. And I actually, before we were talking to you, I was asking Boz what she makes of this, you know, sort of stilted language. And actually her answer for, for your movie is, well, it's all a con. So it, it, it plays because, you know, everybody's pretending. But I was right. just curious how that was for you or how his language has been for you. Has it ever been something to kind of overcome? Well, first, let me say this, because I think you'll find this interesting. I first met Mammon on the steps of the Goodman Theater. Oh. Uh, it was like 19, I think I was doing Wonderful Ice Cream Suit at the time at the, at the Organic. So it was like 1972, 73. And I was going back to the Goodman probably to see Bella or somebody like that. And I was going down the stairs, because like I said, it was underground. I was going down the stairs, and this gentleman's coming up the stairs. And he's very natally dressed, I remember, at the time. And I'm dressed like a bum. I'm thinking, and he stops me. He goes, excuse me, I just want to let you, he goes, my name is David Mamet. I'm a playwright. And I saw what thing you've done recently at The Organic, and I think you're really a wonderful actor. And someday I would love you to perhaps work on one of my projects. And I'm, I don't know who the hell this guy is. I'm like, yeah, great. Oh, that's cool. Nice to meet you. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's how we met on the steps of the Goodman. And it was later that he then came to the, he started finding, trying to find, he had just arrived back from Vermont where he was teaching. He was going to start his own company, but he hadn't yet. And now he was trying to go and go visiting all the local theaters and liked the organic. So he came to us with the script for American Buffalo, which had never been done at that point, wow. just written. And he said, I'd like to hear it. Would you guys mind reading it? So I was the first person to read Teach. Oh, how cool. For him, Jack Wallace read Donnie, read the the, 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 the the owner of the pawn shop, and this actor, Brian Hickey, read the kid. And so we just read it for him. And and it was like, you know, and it was him going, oh, and asking our opinion. I'm saying, yeah, nice, Mr. Man, or Dave, not Dave. We're contemporaries. We're two weeks apart in age. I said, well, Dave, I think, you know, the ending's a little weird, but I mean, who knows what I said. <laughs> but bottom line, he, he started calling me, using me to do little bits, like, you know, reading stuff at the library. Uh, you know, and he was starting to get stuff. Then they did sexual perversity in Chicago. The Organic did it. We were the theater to do it. As it turned out, I had, it was a summer thing, and I had already committed to doing the play Lenny. The, it was the, the, the show, the Broadway show, Lenny. I was the understudy for Lenny, and it was a big paying job, and I couldn't turn it down. And it was, and, it, and we weren't obligated to do the summer show at the Organic because that's when the the the, uh, the company would go their own way. Mm -hmm. But if you wanted to stay, you could. So I could have done the original production of Sexual Perversity in Chicago, but I didn't. I was already committed. They wanted me to. They wanted, I was supposed to play that part, the lead part. Hmm. But uh, it's one of those kinds of things. Coulda, woulda, shoulda. I would have been better off doing that than being the understudy of Lenny, which I never anyway but <laughs> right. it turned out because i wound up doing the the world premiere of life in the theater for mammoth 
a uh, few other things and then ultimately led to obviously led to uh, Glengarry which started for me everything else and him and I I mean to this day we're very close and you know have a lot of done things together but going back to your question though what was that it's it's I'm just curious about oh, your the thing about the, the yeah. language how are you language. with his language well okay let, let me put it this way it's difficult to memorize because he writes in iambic pentameter if you if you weren't aware that you are now mm-hmm. and I wasn't I mean because I'm like that stuff you know who, I don't even know how to spell that <laughs> But I'll say this, as a, as an acting student growing up and reading plays, as you may well know, so many things were set in New York and this, 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 and it was a, everything was the Bronx, this, and Times Square, and everything was New York jargon. And so many of your playwrights came from there. Or then there was the, the Southern thing in Tennessee Williams. and da, 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 da. When I first read Mammoth, for me, it was like, oh, this guy writes kind of like I talk. You know what I mean? And he, his ear is, is kind of like that. It's almost like it, it's, it's not realistic. It's hyper-realistic. He takes almost the vernacular of guys like myself, guys like Jack. There's no, there's no, it's no accident that speed, that not speed the plow, that American Buffalo, if you get the original script, is dedicated to J.J. Johnson. J.J. Johnson is, a, again, the actor who was did Glengarry with me on Broadway, all these other things. Again, ex-convict. You know, one of these dumbs and those guys like Jack Wallace. But these are the guys that Mamet channels, you know. He sees in them that raw, grit, pure talent that they have. and ref- But he spins it a little bit. These guys don't talk in iambic pentameter, you know. Right. But if you take that and spin it a little bit, that's what you get. And so for me... It's it, that vernacular. It's it's not it, it it's not unique to House of Games. It's in everything he writes, you right. know, and and that's why it you there's no there's no ad libbing, there's no riffing, there's no improv improvising upon it. You you play the notes as mm. they're written. You can twist the notes. You can play it like a jazz musician will take the music out. You know, you can extend the thing and do this and that and the other. And that's the difference. That's the difference for me when I see somebody who does mammoth and they're doing it like it sounds like a, like a typewriter, like a machine. Right. And then somebody else who can hopefully make it sing. And that's it's like what, you can't be afraid of. Realism, in a way. Exactly right. It's stylized realism. And I always tell acting students, and I'll and sometimes I've seen guys do it, and they'll say they'll add a fuck you or something because they think it's cool, and I'll say no, no, you can't do that. They go, yeah, but no, no, there's no but. I said you can't do that. I said because you got to respect him for what he does this is he wrote that a certain way i mean in all the years i've known i've known him for 40 plus years and worked with him many many times i think twice i've asked him for dave can you i think in the movie house of games in fact there's a moment when we leave the western union place mm-hmm. after we con bill macy out of his yeah. money great right, turn money. for him in that I yeah that. yeah so Lindsay kraus and i are walking down the street and I say a line to her, and he, as he wrote it, it was, don't trust anyone. And all I, it was the one time I gave a suggestion to Dave, one of the few, maybe three times in my career. I said, Dave, I said, I just think Mike Mancuso would say, 
don't trust nobody. Yes. Even if it makes no sense. And he thought for a second, and I could tell it was very difficult for him to do it, but he said, okay, you know. It so played. that was my one it contribution. It was my one contribution. But I think he probably went nobody, anyone, three syllables, two syllables, okay, I guess it's okay. But that's what he was like. But he is, he is so brilliant in what he does. You know, and I'm not saying I, that I even love everything he's written or does, but that's okay. I don't love everything Shakespeare wrote either. But it's like, but when he's when he's on, he's on, and it's like, like Glenn Gary. It, it took me the longest time to even understand what the hell I was saying in that play. Really? You, oh yeah. First of all, I never lived in a house. My, like parents had no money. We always lived in apartments. I didn't know what a lead was. Yeah. I didn't know about real estate. It was right. all like a foreign language. So I once, but once I got into it, once I got on that train, once I, in fact, that's a mythical, not mythical, it's, it's, it's a kind of story people know of that. The opening night of Glengarry in Chicago with the Goodman, I went up on the monologue. Oh, I, I read the story. That. I read the story. Oh, yeah, yeah. I totally went up and there was like a minute pause. Yeah. And, and William Peterson was playing Link at the time for the Chicago production. And I could see he's trembling. He can't help me. He doesn't have a, a line. Right. Like, oh, and all I wanted to do was lean over and say, it's okay, Bill. It's only a play. You know, <laughs> Because literally, that speech was such a, a such a you know it's a stream of consciousness almost. Yep. And I was lost. And it's long. Totally lost. It's long. And I, it's long. And I only got I maybe it was a minute into it. And this is opening night. And Siskel and Ebert were there. And Siskel told me later. He said it was the most exciting moment in theaters had in his life because he said that's when you realize this is this is the real deal. Live theater. And I figured. So then I said to myself, Oh fuck it. I said. I got to, we're going to be, I can't sit here all night and say nothing. The stage manager is yelling the lines and it's still not helping because it's so, and so I, I just cut to the end. I go, hi, my name is Richard Roma. What's yours? And and so then I figured now intermission comes and I'm thinking, well, it's been a nice career. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I'll chalk this up to experience. Mamet comes backstage, runs up to me, hugs me. The director hugs me. Lindsay Krauss is in the, she was, he was married to her. Then she hugs me. And I'm thinking, well, fuck, I got to do the second act, I guess. Let me just do it. So, I mean, I, I blistered the second act. I know the second act is, is good because I, I was so pissed at myself. Hmm. And they, they made a brief mention of it in the review the next day. And blah, blah, blah. Thank God the Boston Globe had seen one of the previews. And that's, I think, which helped why he won the Pulitzer because that, that's how we won the He had won the Pulitzer before we even got to New York or they knew that he was going to win. Uh, and but you, anyway, you ended up winning so, the tone. You you won the tone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, well, that's the point because, and I use this when I speak to classes about you can take your lowest moment and turn it into your greatest triumph if you maybe apply yourself. Because what happened is the next day, Mamet and the director Greg Mosher took me to lunch because <laughs> now they're a little worried. You know, opening night, the guy kind of went south on them, and they started to say, "Joe, how can we help you?" I said, "Look, boys." And Mamet talks about he always brings it up because at that lunch, how I went. Look, don't worry about it. I got this. There's nothing you can do to help me. This is on me. Because I'm not used to it. I've never grown up. I was always yeah. like, I'm cocky. You know, what the fuck is me? I can't yeah. do this shit. Yeah. So I went back to my, you know, hotel room. And every night, not every night, but I would write out that monologue longhand. Just from, just write it out. No, that's how I knew that thing backwards and forwards and backwards. Because I thought to myself, I, I was cocky. What it was is I'd gotten through previews 
and I still didn't quite understand what I was doing. But mm. I kept thinking, oh, it'll come to me. I'll get it. I, I, I'm playing the moments, but I don't really get it. Mm. And I thought, oh, well, now all of a sudden I had to get it. Well, I worked on it, worked on it, worked on it. You know, the rest of the run went fine. We get to New York. And my, you know, that was a whole other experience. I felt, and now I'd, I'd done it enough times in Chicago. I felt in control. And I knew at the first preview, we did the first preview, we had a lot of young people in the audience. When I got to that line, after doing that whole monologue, hey, my name's Richard Roma, what's yours? The fucking audience went crazy. Yep. And oh, I went, wow. it's, it gave me such power. And that and that character is that kind of guy anyway. And thank God even the costumer, Nan Sibula, understood that. Yes, we know her, teacher, yeah. Well, Nan was smart enough to make, didn't you know, they didn't make me just look good. They bought me a $2,000 suit. And so when I put that suit on, that costume on, as Ricky Richard Roma, Ricky Roma, up in the dressing room, I I felt like a matador going to kill the bull. Mm. It was like, I am, you know, nobody's gonna yeah. fuck with me tonight. You know, you know. And so when I hit that stage, you knew it. That was that. And so, you know, winning the Tony, of course, that's a whole other story. I mean, it, it was such a, a thrill because something I never would imagine it would have happened. But but when it did, it was like. Uh, again, taking it from the lowest moment I've ever right. had in the theater, that opening night in Chicago, to the greatest moment I'd have in the theater of, of, of for this with the same role. Yeah. And can you imagine, like, I, I know we need to end, but I just want to say, like, if you had gone off stage at the end at intermission and said, I'm done, I'm not doing this anymore. It's too scary. I screwed it up. Can you, I mean, it just, it's a moment. It's like a split second that separates people who are like, you know what? I'm going to get back up and do this shit again yeah. versus people who let their fear and their whatever get them. Well, that's the point I try to make to students when I talk to them or tell them that story. Like for me, I had no plan B. I go, what am I going to do? Go back to Cicero. Cicero, you either became a cop or you became a criminal. Right. You know, right. you were you were one or the other. Those were your two big choices. There was no bookstores in Cicero. No. There may still not be for all I know. I don't, the only yeah. bookstore was in the high school. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not saying it's a stupid town, but it's, it is what it is. Yeah. You know, it's a blue collar working class town. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I had no alternative. This is I, this has got to work, or or I don't know what I, you know. I'm back to square one, uh, and so it worked. I mean, you know, it panned out. <laughs> yeah, and it's an interesting thought that maybe going up is the way that because I I'm actually remembering that couple of times that I've gone up. That's when you end up dropping in more right. to the character. I even learned something once one of the performances of Glengarry in New York. Now we're maybe nine months into the show. Uh, Vincent Gardenia was now playing Shelley Levine, the wonderful actor, the guy from Moon, Moonstruck, mm -hmm. and, you know, just great, tremendous actor. He's doing one of the Shelley Levine big speeches. Of course, like this is performance number maybe 280, you know, so I'm sitting there listening to him. And all of a sudden he goes, then my sister, my sister bought a cow. And I remember when she brought that cow and it was like, <laughs> you know, I'm like, what? what? And 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 I look at the other actors on stage, and we're all like, "Oh, yeah." And I'm saying, I don't remember any line about a sister and a cow in yeah. Glengarry. And he's going, he's going, yeah. My sister, she brought the cow, and then we went out to the woods, and da, 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 da. and he stopped, and he went anyway. And then he picked up hmm. and right where he, where we were supposed to, and continued. Wow. And we were all like, "Fuck!" We were, on, I mean, you know. We we went yeah. from kind of lackadaisical, like yeah, this is we're in a groove, to like 
what is the world going to explode anyway? Right. Yes. So now we cut to, to the end of the play because there's no end. This is in the second act. It doesn't stop till the play's over. I go, Vinny, what the fuck? And he goes, Oh, yeah. Well, I went up. So, so, you know, the best thing to do when you go up, just go with it. You know, talk about what comes into your mind. And eventually you'll get there. <laughs> oh, my and God. I thought, I don't like to think of his. I wish I had known that. I wish I yeah. had learned that trick in Chicago. Yeah, wow. last I mean, year. It's amazing because it is, and we talk a lot about on our podcast moments of greatest sort of um, fear or chaos can lead to like miracles clarity. and clarity, mm -hmm. and right, that is right. an amazing story. Thank you for sharing yes. that with us. And thank yeah. you for being on this podcast. We no, this is great. I mean, it. talking to people like yourselves is kind of, for me, I prefer doing this to talking to the New York Times or, you know, <laughs> it's like, uh, and, this uh, is, you yeah. get it. You know, I mean, you, you, yeah. you, you've been on, this, we've been on similar paths. And I'm going to send you a letter you. that says, will you, will you come with me to my, uh, my high school reunion? Because yeah, uh, there you go. people, people <laughs> ask, <laughs> I'm not really going to do that. But, no, well, my, 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 my assistant, my assistant's going to actually make a thing. My daughter convinced him to, to make this like a collage of these things. I literally have about 150. And I mean, for all over the country and all over the world, Amazing. I've been invited to graduations in like Germany and Spain and, and Holland. And, and it's great. I mean, it's, it's so sweet. And I get it because often it's saying I'm studying criminology now. Or I'm right. getting, you know, I'm going to go, yeah. I want to become in the FBI. I want to do this. That's great. So, you know. Oh, the FBI. And we didn't even talk about Jim Clemente. Uh, and next we can time do we... it again. Look, if you yeah. guys want to do it again. Yeah, let's do it again. Let's do it again. Because I didn't even get the chance to talk about our shared uh, Southern Italian family who moved to the Southwest for mining. That's exactly what my family, Her family did. did that. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Right, we'll do it again. You ever, have, you seen, have you seen the movie Wait Until Spring Bandini? No. It's a movie I did. It's a John, you know, who John Fonte is the writer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I do. John Fonte. Yeah. He, well, he's pretty, anyway, whatever. He's pretty, at that time, back in the, I guess the 90s, 80s, 90s, it was really big among the college kids, especially John Fonte. He, he wrote the dust, well, whatever. Coppola was going to make one. Anyway, I did the first time they made one of his books into a movie. It's called Wait Until Spring Bandini. You ought to check it out because it was, it's a, it's foreign produced. It was, uh, it's myself. Um, Ornella Muti and Faye Dunaway are the stars, but it's about this Southern Italian. I played a Southern Italian guy who, who, who moves to Rockland, Colorado, to work in the coal mine. Okay. And yeah. then, but then I'm a stonemason. Anyway, you'll see. It's just what you're talking about. All right, oh, cool. Well, we're gonna have to have you back. Thank yeah, you, we'll Joe. do it again. I'll, I'll be glad to do it again. All right. All right. I really appreciate it. Have a great Take one. If you liked what you heard today, please give us a positive five-star review and subscribe and tell your friends. I Survived Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you! Bye.